Today we're continuing our look at the I am statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John. And I think it's a very appropriate time of year for us to be taking a look at some of these things as Christ reveals to us who he is and why he came to this earth in these statements that he made. Uh, So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of John chapter 14. It's a familiar portion of Scripture, I'm sure, to some of us. At least one of the verses that's contained here in this portion of Scripture is probably very familiar to many of us. And in this portion of Scripture, we'll see Jesus tell us, he'll, he'll say, I am the way and the truth and the life. So we're going to talk about what he meant by stating these things. So John chapter 14, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege to be able to take some time together today to read it and to study it and to learn from it. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, just permeate our minds with this truth, that we would understand what you're communicating here and that our walk with you would grow, and that our experience here on this earth would mature as our spiritual walk with you matures. So Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be able to think about these words and to think about your statement as you said that you are the way and the truth and the life. We pray that we would value that truth, and we pray that we would value that statement, and we pray that we would value what you were communicating to us in these words. We commit this time to your care now, Lord, and we thank you for your presence with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a a regular question that gets asked in our home at this point, now that we have two teenage drivers and two more in the pipeline, all right, so let the fear come upon you for us, right? Two already, two more in the pipeline. But the question that inevitably gets asked multiple times per day is, where are you going? Right? And it only takes, it's like a Pavlovian response, meaning, you know, we'll hear keys jingle, or we'll hear the creak of the front door, and instinctively, either I will say it or my wife will say it, where are you going? Where are you going? Multiple times a day. Now, I think without exception, all of us prefer to know just in general in life or when we're traveling or whatever we're doing, we want to know where we're going. I want to know where I'm going. You probably want to know where you're going. I think that's an instinctive response. We want to know what's up ahead. We want to know where we're headed. Um, I'm grateful that we live in this era of GPS 
In some ways, I think it makes the previous skill that at one time I had developed of, of reading maps, it feels obsolete at this point because I find that I never use them any longer. But I still remember when I was a brand new driver, and some of you have probably told this story to before, but I remember I was a brand new driver. I got my license in early December. So I got my license, it's early December, and uh, my mother asked me if I would do a favor for her on Christmas Eve. And she asked me if I would drive down and go get my grandmother and my aunt and then bring them to our home for, did I say New Year's Eve? I meant to say Christmas Eve. This is on Christmas Eve, all right. In my head I was saying it wrong. All right, scrap that. Yeah, Christmas Eve. And she said, she said, could you go down and get them? And I said, I'd be happy to. And I remember I was all excited. I thought, wow, this feels like a really adult moment as I'm driving to my grandmother's house. And my aunt was her sister, and she, she, so she was my great aunt. And she lived with my grandmother at that point. So they lived in the same home in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. And I was all excited about being able to make this trip. And I'd made this trip a million times growing up. But you know how different the roads look when you are behind the wheel versus when you're a passenger in a car, all of a sudden everything looks very different. But I thought, no sweat. I wasn't worried about this trip at all. I thought, I'll be fine. And in fact, I went and did a little shopping beforehand, and then I thought, all right, I got plenty of time. And then I, I was like, all right, time to get on the highway and uh, drive down to Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, and pick up my grandmother and pick up my aunt. And I made my way down the highway, and I knew it took, typically it took about an hour from our house to their house. So as I'm getting close to an hour, I'm looking around and I'm thinking, why am I not seeing the things that I'm used to seeing by now? Like when I get close to Wilkesbury, normally I see this building and I say, why am I not seeing that? Timing-wise, I should be there, shouldn't I? This is the first time I had driven that far, and I, I thought, well, maybe I'll see it soon. And, and as, as time is going on, I'm, I'm not seeing that. And then finally, I'm starting to see signs for New Jersey. And I thought, well, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, I could tell you, if you don't know where it is, I promise you it's nowhere near New Jersey, right? If you see signs for New Jersey and you're trying to head to Wilkes-Barre, you have made a bad decision somewhere along the way. And I remember I pulled off the highway, and uh, I, I don't even remember exactly who I talked to. I pulled over and, and talked to somebody, and they gave me directions how to get to Wilkes-Barre. And I remember in that moment thinking, I am nowhere near Wilkes-Barre. I'm an hour in the wrong direction. So I had to make up that time plus extra to get there. And this, by the way, is before everybody had a cell phone in their pocket. There wasn't a, so no one knew where I was. Nobody knew where I was, and I had lost my sense of direction, apparently. And I finally arrived at my grandmother's house very late, and I saw very scared faces terrified faces. As soon as I, as soon as I opened the door, I, I saw my grandmother and my aunt just kind of breathe a sigh of relief. And immediately my grandmother called my mother and said, he's here. He made it. And then I had to walk through the story of why I was so late picking them up. Now, thankfully, my grandmother gave me very good directions with her in the car to get back. We made really good time on the way back, you know, just had to have an experienced navigator in the vehicle with me. But I bring that up because as we're looking at John 14 today, as we're looking just at these first seven verses, you have Jesus speaking about direction with his disciples. He's speaking about direction here. And at the time he's speaking these words, if you look at the context of what was taking place around these verses and around this chapter, you have the disciples growing very nervous and a bit fearful about what was coming next. But Jesus said to them in the midst of their nervousness, he looks at them and he says, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. And in doing this, what Jesus was doing, he was reassuring them and really all of his future followers that we can trust him and we can trust the direction that he gives. Now, I want to take a look really quickly here, starting at John 14, verse 1. Because there's some things that I think we should apply to our day-to-day walk with Christ as we look at the statements that he's making to his disciples in this passage of Scripture. Let me reread John 14.1, because here Jesus assures us that our hearts do not need to be troubled. He says this, "Let your hearts, or Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, as I mentioned, if you take a look uh, at, the, at the conversations that were taking place just prior to these verses, you'll see some very interesting things. You'll actually see that Jesus told his disciples several things that clearly troubled them. They were troubled by the things that Jesus had said. So in the context of the chapter prior to this, you have the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, you have Jesus washing their feet. And even when you look at their responses, particularly Peter's in that context, when you see the responses of uh, the disciples there, you can see that that act of humility is Jesus is washing their feet. So you have their leader, their primary example, washing their feet, and they felt embarrassed by this. And it seemed that it disturbed them. And that's their reaction in that moment. And then during the meal, Jesus tells them, one of you is going to betray me. So that's a little bit concerning, too, considering that these men have been together for over three years and living in close proximity, and there's a lot of trust, and there's a lot of camaraderie and all that you would expect to have been developed. And and here you have the disciples expecting Jesus to be raised up as king, the, the, the Messiah that they were going to reign right there with. And he's saying, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. And then soon after that, he tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. So one of you is going to betray me, and uh, Peter, you're going to deny me. And if you also look at the context of what he says prior to this chapter, he also tells them that he's going somewhere, and they wouldn't be able to come with him. Now again, for years they've been traveling together. What do you mean you're going somewhere, and we can't go with you? We go with you everywhere, at least some of us do. You know, at least take Peter, James, and John, right? You know, if you're not going to take the whole crew, take at least some of us. What do you mean? You're going somewhere. We can't go with you. So Jesus says a few things here that you could tell troubled the disciples. Now, if you were the disciples, you know, if you were in that context, if you were following Christ during that time in that way, how do you think these actions and these statements would have struck you? You know, if, if the person you considered your leader, your teacher, your, your greatest mentor said, hey guys, I'm actually about to leave you, one of you is going to betray me, and another one's going to deny even knowing me. Boom, right? How would you feel if he said all of those things to you pretty much all in the same stretch of time? How would you have responded to that? Do you think, he would have, you, do you, think you would have been more disturbed that he was about to leave Or do you think you would have been more disturbed and troubled about the fact that one in the group was about to betray and one was about to deny? Which would have been more disturbing? Or would it have been collectively just a miserable, devastating conversation? That's the context that Jesus is speaking these words. It's important and valuable to look at the context. And he's saying to them, let your hearts, or let not your hearts be troubled. He's saying, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Jesus could see, and obviously he instinctively knew that his disciples were troubled by his statements, and in some ways I think he's probably using this as a teachable moment with them. So he takes this opportunity to teach them something that they needed to know and that believers of all generations need to know. And Jesus was telling them, your hearts don't need to be troubled. Your hearts don't need to be troubled. As you trust in the Father, Jesus is saying, you could trust Him as well because He and the Father are one. This is what Christ is communicating to them in this moment where they're clearly, visibly, and audibly troubled. Now let me say this in a personal way, or ask this in a personal way. When is the last time something truly troubled you? I want, want to give you a moment to maybe even think about a specific example. When's the last time something truly troubled you? The longer I've known people, the more I've realized that some people make it very easy to figure out when something's troubling them. You could see it on their face. They don't hide it. They don't stuff it somewhere. It's just very visible. Even if they tried to hide it, you'd be able to figure it out because they wear their emotions on their face. You know, do you ever hear it said of someone, oh, they wear their emotions on their sleeve? You know, it's obvious how someone's feeling by how they look. But then there are other people that don't make it very obvious. There are some people in my life that if they're troubled, I would never know if they didn't tell me because they have just uh, they keep a very straight face. Uh, they keep their emotions hidden. They disguise how they're feeling with a polite smile or or with, you know, kind of, you know, quiet laughter, but in the midst of what they're going through, they're in pain. So, my follow-up question then to that is, what do you do when you're troubled? How do you respond to it? What do you do when you're troubled? And the reason I ask that is because I I want us to realize that that can actually be a very dangerous time in our life. When you're troubled, that could be a very, very dangerous time. In fact, for many people, that becomes one of the most dangerous moments of their life. And what I mean by that is this. When we are troubled, when our hearts are heavy, something's on our mind, it's really, really bothering us, when we're deeply and truly troubled, we're more likely to make unwise and destructive decisions in an attempt to ease our pain. So just think about that. Maybe even a few examples of that are coming to your mind as I'm seeing the affirmative on on some of your faces. When we're troubled, we are more likely to drift toward unwise and unhealthy solutions to try and ease our pain. For some people, they will tell you that in the midst of their troubles, that's when their addictions began. For other people, that's when they started employing some self-protective strategies and and basically uh, just closing themselves off from others emotionally in a defensive way so as to avoid more pain. And it's all an attempt to protect ourselves from feeling that trauma, from feeling that discomfort, from feeling that pain. So when we're troubled, we're actually in a spot, whether we realize it or not, where some dangerous choices can start to to surface or, or, or be made in those moments. But our unhealthy addictions and our, our self-protective strategies, these are things that cannot heal our troubled hearts. Those approaches are not the right way to try and ease our pain. And so you look at John 14, 1, as this chapter opens up with the words of Christ. And what's Jesus revealing to us in His words and in His actions? He's revealing that He is the source of peace 
for a troubled heart. When we fully trust Him, when we hand the burden of our pain, whatever the nature of our pain is, even if it's the deepest pain we've ever felt, when we hand that over to Him, we find healing. That's something Christ delights to supply to His children. Now, when we trust a drug, or when we trust a food, or when we try and trust walling ourselves off from others emotionally to bring us more comfort, all we're doing really is ending up in more pain. We're inviting more pain into our life because there's a negative consequence to each one of those decisions. But here you have Jesus in His words and in His actions assuring us that if we trust in Him, our hearts don't need to be troubled. So that's how He sets up this particular portion of Scripture. And then it goes on as the conversation continues. And here Jesus shows us that He will bring those who trust Him into His presence forever. Look at what He says and what the Scripture reveals to us in John 14, verses 2 through 3. He says this, and I'm sure this is a familiar portion of Scripture for most, if not all of us. But there it says, "...in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so..." Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I don't know what your experience was like when you were growing up. Um, When I was growing up, our family actually moved many times. And if I'm honest with you, past the age of eight, so everything was kind of fine prior to age eight, but past the age of eight, uh, the places we lived were not very nice, and we moved a lot. I think at one point I counted, and I have to double count this to make sure it's correct, but I think I moved 12 times before I graduated high school. 12 times. That's kind of a lot to move, and maybe some of you have had a similar experience, but most of the places we lived were not very nice, and we also didn't tend to stay in one place for a very long time. And basically, at that season of my life, we, our, our family was dealing with all sorts of issues that kept perpetuating and complicating that cycle. And it just kept going on and on and on. And I remember as a teenager, uh, sometimes just, you know, you, you know, when you're a teenager, you try and just take a pause from everyone around you, and you just kind of go by yourself, and all you want to do is be alone. And I remember when I was alone during that time, I would pacify myself with thoughts of living in a nice home someday. And I would just sit back and I'd think, you know, if I had a nice house, this is what kind of furniture I think I'd put in it. If I had a nice house, this is how I think we would decorate it. If I had a nice house, this is probably how I'd keep the lawn or probably how I'd keep the landscaping. And if I'm really honest right now, and I've kind of, I try and analyze myself a lot, and sometimes I overanalyze myself. Maybe you do this as well. But if I'm really honest, I actually think part of my fascination with real estate, I look at real estate listings all the time and have for years and years and years. Um, but I think part of my fascination with real estate and with, with home improvements and things like that, I think it actually comes back to the place that I was in when I was a child where I was longing for a place that felt like home. I really think it comes back to that. I think that's where that fascination really began. Then you look at the things that Christ is talking about here in this portion of Scripture, and I suspect that what, part of what he's communicating here is that he knows that that's a longing that we all have. So Jesus here is speaking about a house in this passage that belongs to his father. Speaking about a house that belongs to his father. And he tells his disciples that he was going there to prepare a place for them. 
but that he would come back again for them and then take them to be with him forever. So that was his plan. That was what he was, what he was saying he would do. And by the way, these words of Jesus have been a source of fascination for believers for centuries. Ever since Jesus first spoke these words, believers throughout the centuries have been fascinated with what Jesus is talking about and what he's describing in this portion of Scripture. And when I read these words, I can't help but imagine what this is going to look like. I think, what's it going to look like? What's he talking about here? You know, what does that look like? I wonder how it will feel. I wonder how it will smell. I just bought a, a, a new air freshener for our family room this week. It's lavender and vanilla. It's delightful, right? It's delightful. My wife tells me over and over again, she's like, oh, that's my favorite one. I like, I like when, we, when the house smells like that. Lavender and vanilla, you know, the oils of, of uh, you know, the scent going through the air, and you're like... Ah, I can just relax here, right? And so I think about this heavenly home. I'm like, all right, well, what will it smell? Well, the Lord designed our senses, right? And uh, what's this going? What's it going to smell like? What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? You know, on on uh, Sunday nights, our family has a tradition that we we do during the winter months. It's a recent tradition, actually, where we decided, all right, every Sunday night we're going to end, you know, the day together with a fire in the fireplace. And so my goal during the week is make sure I have enough fire in the fireplace. And so we'll sit together in the quiet of the family room. We'll turn the lights down low. I'll get the fire going. And so even just the sound and the smell of the fire going, it's very relaxing. It's very calming. If you're ever super, super stressed on a Sunday night, just stop by our house. Just come in our living room. Don't talk, all right? Don't say anything, right? Just join the silence and relax and listen to the fire, you know, take in the smells. But, I, you know, when Christ is, like, talking about some of these things, he's talking about this home, this heavenly home. What's this going to look like? What's this going to experience? Be like, I think, what's it going to look like? What's it going to smell like? What's it going to feel like to be there? And sometimes I even wonder if my familiarity with earthly architecture kind of clouds my ability to truly appreciate what Jesus is telling us here. Because we can't help sometimes but think about it in the sense of, of you know, what, what does a house look like in heaven? What do these places look like? You know what kind of weird things I think about when I think about a heavenly home? After Jesus rose from the grave, did he have any need for doors? In his glorified body, what did he do? He just passed through walls, right? And, and then Scripture tells us, oh, you're going to have a body like his glorified body. So I'm thinking, all right, well, in heavenly architecture... Are doors necessary? <laughs> they must not be, but would they even be there? Would they just be decorative to remind us of a time when we actually needed them? But we don't need them now because we're in our glorified bodies. We just walk through walls. I don't know, all right? And I shouldn't go any further down this rabbit trail because you'll walk out thinking, that man is insane, right? You would be right. But I think when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, it's easy to just kind of daydream about what Jesus is saying because it's fascinating. And I think it's easy for us to focus on what we imagine are these heavenly dwelling places that Jesus is talking about here, what they're going to look like. And then at the same time, sometimes I wonder when I'm thinking about that, if maybe I'm actually missing the greater point of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Because Jesus isn't just trying to tell us that we're going to live in a nice heavenly abode, although he does indicate that. So I get that part. But I think there's more to what he's saying here. I think he's trying to comfort his disciples with the knowledge that they will see Him again. I think that's the greater point. And that they're going to get to live with Him forever. And I think that's comforting for us as well. Particularly if you're going through a season maybe where you feel lonely or unloved or just not at home. And here you have your Creator, your Savior saying, no, you're going to be with me forever. 
You're not forgotten. You're going to be with me forever. That's what he's communicating here. And he matters more than our earthly concept of a residence. And here Jesus reveals that he will graciously allow those who trust in him to find rest in his presence for all eternity. We will be with him. And that's what he communicates in this portion of Scripture as an encouragement to his disciples, as an encouragement to us. And then he goes on a little bit further here. And he starts to show that, he's, that he is opening our eyes to understand the way. Now, what do I mean by the way as I, as I have that in quotes? What do I mean by the way? Well, look at what he says in verses 4 and 5 of John 14. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord... We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? The other day I was looking at a picture that I had actually posted seven years ago online. And it was a picture of a bookcase. Now, I'm a big fan of reading, so the sight of this bookcase is something that I would say is automatically interesting to me. found myself magnifying it and trying to look at some of the specific books that were on the bookshelves because the shelves were completely filled from top to bottom with all different kinds of books. Some you know, were bright colors, some were dark colors, some were tall, some were wide. And as I looked at this image, and I remembered, I was like, wait a second, I've seen this image before. There's something about this? What, what was it about this image that I remember being interesting? Um, so I'm just going to bring it up here on the screen. All right, that's the bookcase. This is the act, actual picture. So what, what do you think? It's kind of an interesting picture. Look at it closely. Look at it real closely right in the center and not approvingly when you see what I'm pointing out to and look really confused if you don't see it. All right, look puzzled. Keep looking. Do you see it? Right in front of your eyes, there's something that maybe you're seeing. Some of you are not seeing this. All right, I'm going to point it out to you right now. All right, ready? And this is the easiest way to start seeing it. Look down here. What do you see right there? See two shoes? All right, now go up. See a face right there? There is a man with, it looks like he's got like a baggy shirt on and baggy pants and then shoes, and he's painted to blend into that bookcase. And I was looking at this picture again the other day and, and thinking, all right, what was it? There was something interesting about this bookcase. I remember when I posted this, I posted it for a reason. And right there in front of your face, there's a guy standing there. I wonder how long that took. That had to take forever, right? Painted to blend in to this bookcase. So this is right in front of our face, but it's easy for that to be right in front of your face and for it to be the type of thing that you don't necessarily see. And... Um, and here in this portion of Scripture, this is one of those examples from Scripture, from the Gospels in particular, that show us that there were certain things that the disciples, that even though these things were right in front of their face, they just couldn't see them. And many of the deeper level statements that Jesus made, these are statements that went right over their head because they were overly focused on earthly things. And because they were overly focused on earthly things, they remained so until their eyes were spiritually open. Now, when you get into the book of Acts, when you see the discussions that take place in the epistles, you can see 
that, uh, that they had grown in the Lord, as they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. They could see things that they, that they previously were unable to see. But at this point, they were overly focused on earthly things, and they remained so until their eyes were spiritually opened. And in this passage, you have Jesus telling them that they knew the way to where he was going. They knew the way to where he was going. And Thomas, in his typical fashion for the time, questioned that statement. He wants to know, how can we know, how can we possibly know the destination that you're headed toward, that you're speaking of, if we don't know uh, where you're going, and how can we know the way to the destination? You haven't made these things plain to us. How can we know how to get where you haven't even told us you're going? And so Thomas is questioning these things, and, and he tended to do that during that time. I get the impression, you know, sometimes we tend to think of Peter as being the outspoken disciple, but Thomas spoke up from time to time, and he usually did a good job of putting his foot in his mouth, just like Peter did, right? And so he speaks up, and he's honest, and he's probably not the only one thinking it. He's just the one that's honest enough to actually say it. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, um, but even before we kind of respond to Thomas's statement there, if you look in the early chapters, even some of the later chapters, later sections of, of uh, the book of Acts, even before believers were called Christians, do you remember what they were called? They were called followers of the way. That's what believers were called. Even before Christians were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. And that was a reference to the statements that Jesus was making here, this conversation he's having with his disciples as they're saying, wait, we don't even know the way. What are you talking about? We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus explains it all here in just a moment. But for you know, some time, early believers were called followers of the way based on this conversation. Again, Thomas was trying to figure out what the way was as if the way was merely a path. But Jesus was about to show him that the way is a person. Jesus is the way. And that's how this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today finishes up. As we look at verses 6 and 7, it shows us that Jesus is the way, and it also shows us that He's the one who satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. Look at those verses with me as we kind of wrap this all up. But in verse 6 and verse 7 of John 14, it says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's a powerful and very specific statement that Jesus makes in these verses. Now, we live in a pluralistic age, and in a pluralistic age, uh, many people really, really uh, bristle at definitive statements and objective truth. That doesn't always go over very well with some people. And if I'm bold enough to say something along the lines of, hey, salvation can only be obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no plan B. There is no other solution. I think if I, in some context, make that statement, which I absolutely believe is true, I think in some context I'd receive some pushback from those who don't agree or from those who don't appreciate the exclusive nature of that claim because it's a very exclusive 
claim. There's a lot of exclusivity there. And that's part of what makes me appreciate what Jesus is saying in John 14, 6 and 7 even more. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't give a qualified answer. He states the facts plainly, and then he makes it clear that he alone is three things. The way, the truth, and the life. That's what he says here, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way through which we may approach the Father and have a relationship with Him. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's messianic prophecies. He is the truth. They lived in an era where there were plenty of people claiming to be Messiah, you know, during the the years leading up to this and even surrounding that time. And in fact, we live in an era where there are people that try and portray themselves like that even now. And Jesus says, no, I am the truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's messianic prophecies. Jesus also makes it clear that he is the life And he grants eternal life and abundant life to all who were dead in sin who trust in him. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And while that statement's true, it's also because Jesus made these claims that the religious leaders of the day felt justified in calling for his crucifixion. It was these statements and statements like this that that really drove them crazy as Jesus would make these exclusive statements showing that He is one with the Father. They understood the nature of what Jesus was saying, and they rejected Him. And as His disciples were also invited to understand the nature of what He's saying, but embrace Him. It's a very different response. I read a quote recently I want to share with you. It's from John Ortberg. He said this, The human longings that are deep inside us never go away. They exist across cultures. They exist throughout life. When people were first made, our deepest longing was to know and be known. And after the fall, when we all got weird, it's still our deepest longing. But now it's also our deepest fear. Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. Our hearts long for direction. And He is the way. Our hearts long for honesty. And He is the truth. Your heart and my heart longs for eternity. And Jesus tells us in this portion of Scripture that He is the life. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege to be able to look at Your Word together this morning and Just reflect on these things that you're communicating here. Lord, we know that that these are very exclusive claims that you are making in this portion of Scripture. This isn't something that... These aren't words you were just casually floating around as if you were one of several equally viable options or something like that. You very clearly made it known that you are the way, that you are the truth, that you are the life. And our hearts are longing for all sorts of things. And Lord, at times, each and every one of us gathered together today, each and every person who has ever lived, we have tried to satisfy those longings with unhealthy, unwise, and destructive things. And in effect, all we did was invite more pain and more devastation and more hurt into our lives. Then we come back to a portion of Scripture like this and you remind us in your words and in your actions 
that you alone can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. That the things that we're tempted to become addicted to, the things of this world, whether it be food or whether it be drugs or whether it be uh, alcohol or whether it be pornography or whether it be just walling ourselves off from others so that they have no chance of hurting us in any way. Lord, we know that these are things that we probably have, have tried to do in one respect or another, but Lord, those are options that do not work. Because you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, and we will not find life and we will not find healing for our troubled hearts in anything less than you. So thank you, Lord, for challenging us with these truths as we look at your word together this morning. Lord, thank you for speaking things to us that are very specific. And Lord, we know that if we're looking for direction, if we're looking for something, we're trying to find things that really matter. Lord, we know that there are a couple options right in front of us. We can choose what this world tells us will satisfy our longings and ease our pain, or we can trust you and accept the fact that you are what is true. You will work to satisfy the longings of our heart. You are the one that soothes the aches and the pains and the traumas and all of these things that sometimes we let it be known through our face and our demeanor that we're experiencing them, and other times we just just bury it deep. But Lord, we're grateful that we can come to you. We're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you've done all that you've done on our behalf. And we're grateful that as you promised your disciples, that yes, you were going to prepare a place for them, but you're coming back for us. And that we will have the privilege to spend eternity in your presence as you unite the new heaven and the new earth. We have the privilege as your followers, as those who trust in you, to live in your presence forever. So thank you for teaching us that, Lord. Thank you for giving us access to your word that we could read it together today and think about these things. And we pray that in the deepest way possible that you'd encourage our minds and our hearts and our lives through these truths every single day that we live. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.